I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about my sling and stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast, Steve Pelizola, Sam Monson, live on YouTube. I'm coming to you live from my mom's basement, of course. Sam, back in the studio. You have become the cliche again. I like this. This is when you become, you know, nerd in his mom's basement. You're back. <laughs> back to the cliche, at least for uh, two more shows. I'll be back in studio next week. But um, all sorts of stuff to get to. Fun times here today. You guys cover a little Monday Night Football mm -hmm. yesterday, Sam, you and Trevor? Both games. Well, we've got even more to discuss because the Steelers fans are very upset about T.J. Watt, Miles, Garrett grades. We'll discuss that. We'll talk a little bit about the 0-2 teams, a little panic meter time, Sam, for the 0-2 teams. And uh, you've got some uh, GM Palazzolo questions, is that correct? We've got a GM Palazzolo question, yeah. We've, uh, we've got some cool stuff. All right, man. Do you want to – you were getting fired up off air. Off air. Off. You know, I said save it. Save it for the show. You want to dive right into the Miles Garrett, TJ Watt grade. It's another week to explain the PFF process and grading and production and all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah, these uh, a lot of the questions come from our new Discord channel. So if you are server, Discord server. Uh, so you'll find a link to that in the description of the show, whether it's on YouTube or the audio version, hopefully. Um, it's now a working link that doesn't expire. So if you want to head to the Discord, join in the conversation, ask questions that will show up on the show as content, fire away. Join the Discord. Um, yeah, you want to dive straight into our uh, our Explain the Grade segment? Yeah, do we have an opening for that? believe so, yeah. There you go. See? Um, I'm sure PSF will have me a low grade for that, but uh, I'll keep it rolling. All right, it is time to explain the grade. The Pittsburgh Steelers won Monday night against the Cleveland Browns and TJ Watt. Now, this has been an ongoing thing. Steelers fans, Browns fans, Steelers fans in particular, a little, uh, get some Tostitos on their shoulder, Sam, when it comes to the TJ Watt, Miles Garrett comparison, right? Mm -hmm. Full bag of chips there because they always want to say, hey, TJ Watt's a, a bigger impact player. He always has more sacks and just Monday night, yeah, they have a good case, right? T.J. Watt, fumble return for the game-winning touchdown. He also had a sack. He also had a, few, a batted pass and a few more tackles. However, Miles Garrett ends up with a higher PFF grade than T.J. Watt. So let's start by this. When we explain this whole thing, I'll, I'll let you have your piece, and I've got something to say as well. But T.J. Watt had a great game. He was fantastic in this game. So we're not going to explain this thing by tearing one person down but I think it's how do we build up both Miles Garrett and TJ Watt to explain Garrett having a higher overall grade than TJ Watt? Yeah, and you can throw Alex Highsmith into that as well. All three guys graded well. Um, Highsmith was 91, Miles Garrett was 91, TJ Watt 82.6. They all graded extremely well. They were all big impact players uh, in the game. Yeah, the, I mean, the Miles Garrett thing is simple. Like, yes, his statistical profile the end results did not necessarily show up like i saw somebody saying oh how do you grade a guy that well who had one tackle 
Like that was his explanation. Like, well, already we're raising a bit of a red flag that said individual does not necessarily know what he's talking about, right? But he had a 40% pass rush win rate in the game. 40% is insane for any period of time. Like a good pass rush win rate over any extended period is 25%. So 40% is crazy. Um, Miles Garrett had a pressure 40% of the time, or had a win, sorry, 40% of the time, and only a limited amount of those had a chance to become pressure. And this is really the crux of the argument, is it's the difference between grading process and what a guy is actually doing on an individual play and the results of those wins or losses, right? And this game is interesting because it's a great case study in how wide that spectrum can be. If you win at the line against your blocker, any one of a number of things can happen. You can get nothing for it, right? The ball's out before you get a chance to make a play. Particularly if you're on the blind spot, blind side of the play, quarterback might never even know it's happening, right? <laughs> the offensive tackle can be face first in the dirt, and the defensive end is bearing down on the quarterback. If he's reading the right side of the field, gets the ball out of his hands, he never knows that play exists. But you won. You did a good job from your point of view. And then the flip side of that is, you can not be doing a particularly good job. You can have nothing going in your direction, but the ball bounces in your direction or somebody else flushes the quarterback out and you end up making a positive play in what was a qualitatively worse pass rush rep from your point of view. So you can get anything in between. And really, Miles Garrett, and this has been a feature of his play for years, but also showed up in this game, had a ton of wins that did not get a chance to become pressure. So we have seven of those plays for him in addition to the three pressures that he actually had. And those are the plays that simply don't show up in the box score or even in any kind of statistical profile. Miles Garrett is winning his his rep his uh, against his blocker and, uh, and not getting rewarded for it. And that's not a, oh, Miles Garrett can't finish the play thing. That's a, there are other factors at play here that the edge rusher, the pass rusher simply does not control. Yeah, I tried to add a little perspective to that, Sam, because just to look at if if you're a longtime PFF listener, this might be a little redundant for you. But we have a lot of new listeners. We have a lot of new viewers. We have a lot of people uh, and we're very thankful for that over these first couple weeks listening and watching and, and perhaps for the first time. So I think it's important to explain the PFF process and um, to explain the fact that. Yes, we're grading those one-on-one -on -one interactions, right? And so the difference in result in those one-on-one -on -one interactions are things out of the edge rusher's control or even the blocker's control, which is why we continue to say we don't look at sack totals, we don't look at tackles, certainly not. Um, so you know, one example here is when Miles Garrett won, the average time to throw on those plays was 2.4. So on the plays in which he won his block, the ball was out in 2.4 seconds. On the plays where TJ Watt won, the ball was out in 2.7. So just for perspective, like T.J. Watt, when he wins his reps, because Deshaun Watson's holding the ball longer than Kenny Pickett, T.J. Watt has more of a, an opportunity to make an impact. The other thing I want to highlight is the two, let's let's take a look at T.J. Watt's sack and Miles Garrett's almost sack because, hey, we, we're grading almost plays here. Miles Garrett has this quick pass rush, beats Dan Moore in about just over two seconds, Gets to Kenny Pickett. He's taking Kenny Pickett down, who just flips the ball at the last second to save the sack. Something really completely out of Miles Garrett's control. Great pass rush. Was it a sack? No. It's because the quarterback made a good play. 
to turn it into an incompletion. On the other hand, TJ Watts actual sack took Deshaun Watson being flushed from the pocket. TJ Watt was actually being well blocked on the play by right tackle Dewan Jones. Now Watt makes an awesome play to track Watson down, but he needs Deshaun Watson to hold the ball for four yeah. and a half, five seconds well, to get that sack. So those two plays are good examples where the box score says sack for TJ Watt, nothing for Miles Garrett, but I would argue the Miles Garrett play is actually more impressive, just an example of how the PFF grading might work. And even the very end of that play, I think, is critical as well. Because if you watched, if you hadn't seen the TJ Watt play and you just watched the Miles Garrett play, you would say, well, look, that's an example. He's not finishing, right? He's gone low at his ankles. He gave the quarterback a chance to get rid of that ball. Like, that's why that's not a sack. If that was TJ Watt, it would be a sack. And that's the difference between Miles Garrett and TJ Watt. Well, if you then watch the TJ Watt play, it's almost identical in terms of he ends up going around the ankles as well, only gets one leg, brings him down. And then the, the difference is simply Deshaun Watson had no receiver on that side of the field, so didn't flip the ball out on the way down to nobody, right? Like, that is the difference. Literally, sack versus hit is on one play, Kenny Pickett found somewhere to flip the ball out of the grasp to and make it an incomplete pass, not a sack. And on the other play, Deshaun Watson didn't find that receiver or didn't, you know, take the intentional grounding by throwing it into to nobody. That's the difference between sack and hit on just at the end of the play. And I agree with you that before that, the actual pass rush rep was a better play by Garrett than T.J. Watt. Um, so here's what I would say. And, you know, look, a lot of times when we're doing the explain the grade, we say, hey, well, the run game wasn't as effective as you thought. I thought both guys were really good in the run game. T.J. Watt was awesome. As far as the run game goes, set a hard edge. He was dominating Brown's tight ends. Uh, he was fantastic in the run game. One missed tackle in there against Nick Chubb. That was pretty much it. Watt was fantastic in the run game, but as was Miles Garrett. But, you know, the reason why there was one tackle every time Miles Garrett won a rep in the run game, the ball went elsewhere. It either forced a cut or the running back just didn't go that way. So, again, why tackles can be a little overrated. So I thought they were both really good as far as the run game goes. And then to just put a bow on the pass rush stuff, Miles Garrett only rushed 25 times. We had him with those 10 wins, that 40% win rate. T.J. Watt had a comparable number of wins on 18 more rushes. Now, here's the thing I'll concede. To the eye test, did, did T.J. Watt's good plays, did his good plays have a bigger impact on the game? I would agree, yes. Now, of course, there's a game-winning fumble recovery for a touchdown. I'll let you vent on that if you want. But... You know, when you're watching the game, you're like, hey, T.J. Watt's making a bigger impact than Miles Garrett. And I think that's fair until you go through the film and you go play by play and just think, okay, how much of that T.J. Watt impact is dependent on the quarterback or other things happening? And that's where, again, the grade might come from. Yeah, I mean, I the, the touchdown thing, I just I'm curious how good a play people seem to think that that is right. Like in terms of. Like, if you're looking at EPA, obviously that's massive. It's a game-swinging play. It's putting seven points on the board from the defensive perspective. It doesn't get any bigger than that. But when you're asking, okay, the results were fantastic, but how good a play was it from T.J. Watt? Like, how, how big an impact did he make? I mean, the ball gets squirted out because the other side won. Like, it was a strip sack from the other side of the line. T.J. Watt actually is going nowhere. He got chipped on the play He's looking to come back inside Dewan Jones and maybe clean up, you know, with, with Watson stepping up in the pocket. And the ball basically bounces to him, and he picks it up and jogs 15 yards into the end zone. Like, 
again, results, it's fantastic, but I, it's borderline expected from an edge rusher that can you pick up a ball and run it 10 yards? You know, if you can't, what are you doing on the field? Because that doesn't feel that difficult a, a role for T.J. Watt. So I, I'm kind of confused that like, I understand saying, look, he did a lot of good things, he graded, which is why he graded well. And, you know, why was his grade not higher? I don't really understand if your argument is, well, he scored a touchdown, therefore his grade should be like, you know, 98. You're like, yeah, but did you see the touchdown? Yeah, I mean, we we still fighting against we're still fighting against the things we were fighting against ten to fifteen years ago. Where at the end of the day, somebody's going to list tackles and sacks and forced fumbles and fumble recovery. Now, forced fumbles are good, but yeah. fumble recoveries, uh, defensive touchdowns as as things that are you know completely on the player when there's a lot of other things going on. I think to sum it up for me, for us, we're it's like we're giving credit for the guy that lines out four times as a hitter, hits hits the ball hard four times and makes outs. Versus the guy who hits four bloop singles. Obviously, the bloop singles are, are better for the team on that particular day, but the line drives are better at bats, better hits. So there's my baseball analogy there. And yeah. again, that's not to diminish TJ Watt. He had a very good game, but Miles Garrett had a very good game as well that just went under the radar for other reasons outside of his control. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think people lose sight of how much of a pass rusher's production is completely outside of their control, right? Everything, various different things impact whether or not that guy is going to get rewarded at the end of the play, whether it's how quickly the ball comes out and related to that is how good the coverage is, how good the receivers are in the play, how good the quarterback is simply at not, not only in terms of uh, understanding, feeling uh, pressure in the pocket, moving around, but also being able to you know read a defense and get the ball out of his hands. How good the blocker is, how many blockers are assigned, and that's one area where Watt can get some credit back. Right, is he did get chipped and helped a lot. Dewan Jones, rookie fourth round offensive tackle, saw quite a lot of help in uh, dealing with T.J. Watt. So you give him credit for that. But all of these things affect whether or not a pass rusher is going to get rewarded for how good he is with results versus just getting those wins at the line. But that's why if you're the grade is essentially trying to determine how good a guy played or not and how good he played is that first part. It's can you beat your block or not on a regular basis? And if you can, usually good things will happen, but it's not a guarantee because of all these other factors. So one thing, you know, in terms of reward versus um, versus process, like yeah, T.J. Watt scored a touchdown. On the other hand, Alex Highsmith gets a significantly better grade on that play because he whooped the left tackle and forced the fumble out in the first place in order for T.J. Watt to, like, scoop it up and run 15 yards. Like, I, I have no time for anybody that wants to argue that T.J. Watt should have a higher grade on that play because I think that that's just a fundamentally wrong way of looking at football, Right. Alex Highsmith did the more important thing on that play, which was win your block and force the fumble out from the quarterback. And then T.J. Watt got the benefit of that play, right? And yeah, he gets some credit for scooping up the ball and running because we've all seen players not manage to do that, right? Fail to pick up a loose football on the ground. So he gets some credit for that. But anybody that wants to argue that he should have more credit on that play than Alex Highsmith, I think is out of their minds. An interesting crowd in the YouTube chat right now, Sam. We appreciate the Steelers fans for showing up for this uh, very uh, fun discussion here. We're all just trying to, we're just trying to teach some new skills here, Sam. Just like as a parent, you've had to learn so many new skills 
to provide for your family, how to do copious amounts of laundry, meal plan for even the pickiest eater, and now how to protect your family's financial future. Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underrating health questions. The last thing I'll say. Miles Garrett, TJ Watt. I would just encourage anybody to go back, watch Miles Garrett's 20 pass rushes yeah. against Dan Moore. Do not pay attention to Kenny Pickett. Do not pay attention to when the ball comes out. Just yeah, watch, just watch the interactions. Miles Garrett versus left tackle Dan Moore. And that's you'll see yeah. that because that's exactly that's what we're doing, right? We're we're just looking at that and then just looking at the next matchup, just looking at the next matchup, independent of what the quarterback does on the play. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's the crux of this is, okay, forget TJ Watt, Alex Highsmith. The the real argument seems to be Miles Garrett did nothing in the game, therefore Miles Garrett shouldn't have a good grade. Go back and simply watch that one-on-one matchup. Pretend it's a senior bowl practice, right? Just focus on that. Watch Dan, Dan Moore against Miles Garrett or Miles Garrett against whoever's blocking him and just watch how good he was and how often he won that's why he got a good grade. The fact that it didn't, that he didn't get rewarded for that because of other circumstances or other factors on those plays should be irrelevant. All right, man. So that's, uh, that's it for Garrett and Watt. I'm sure it'll come up again. Um, sometimes I don't like to explain the grade. This one, I'm a good, whatever. It's fun. Good times. So I have uh, have another topic for you that's that I haven't prepped you for specifically because I'm pretty sure you're not going to like it, but we need to talk about it. If this is about rules, no, it's not. It's a, it's another thing you don't like. Did you see the report that the uh, the USFL and the XFL are going to merge? Oh, I don't hate spring football. Oh, you hate spring football. I do not hate for spring football. But hate, I like the fact that it, ex- it exists. I don't have time to watch the games, really, but I like that it's there. Yes, they're merging. The Rock is is uh, wheeling and dealing over there. This is the thing, but this like this now perfectly sets up the scenario that so many people want, which is we need a feeder league. There needs to be a developmental league for the NFL. There has to be. Otherwise, the game is in trouble because there's not enough offensive linemen to go around. There's enough quarterbacks now, but there still needs to be a platform for some of these guys to develop. And one of the biggest problems there is that the NFL doesn't have a deal with any spring league. The what was that league that went to hell? The AAF. The, that was yeah. that was the closest I think that that was there in terms of actually getting. They were very close with the NFL. There was a lot of sort of cooperation there, and then obviously they went to financial ruin. Um, then the USFL and the XFL. Well, the problem here is well, there's two of them. The NFL can't really throw its support around uh, behind either one. Now, if they're merging, I mean, this sets up a scenario now where the where the NFL can go back to cooperating with this league and try and create some kind of pathway for development for players. 
Yeah, I think the thing to keep an eye on here and what's happened with some of those spring leagues is they've become outlets for the four- and five-year veteran who's still trying to hang out. And and there's nothing wrong with that guy. But that's the guy that Sam might tell me, hey, this, we already know who this guy is, right? We already know this guy's already maxed out. He's got four years in the league. He's played 100 snaps. He's been in, you know, on 14 teams. And he's going to go play in the USFXL and whatever it's called. So... <laughs> Those guys are less intriguing. No offense, because they, you know, they they have jobs in football. That's great. But if you truly want to make it the developmental league, right? It's like the the undrafted free agents who didn't make the team, the sixth rounder who didn't make the team, and they're going to go right to the to the developmental league, and they might have two or three years to build it up and get their reps before they come back to the NFL. That is that is intriguing. I just don't know how you balance it between that and the veteran who we probably. We either know who they are at this point, or maybe they didn't get a proper opportunity first time around. So, just something that I think that part to keep an eye on the balance of veterans and young players. I also think, by the way, I don't know what the structure is going to be. I don't know how the whole thing is going to work. Whether one team or one league is is kind of assimilating the other one, or whether it's a true merger. But I think for the like, they would be best served now keeping the histories of both leagues and having two different divisions like xfl division usfl division like the afl nfl merger yeah, come right? together yeah afc nfc like keep to that kind of structure and have like be able to keep whatever cachet exists for those usfl teams that existed in the 1980s that you know came back with branding and all that kind of stuff like that would be cool um and give them enough teams you know to, to start farming out some of these guys so I'm kind of excited for that league. Like, there's something, you know, spring league football, the standard isn't amazing, but I think it serves a valuable purpose and a purpose that hasn't been fully tapped into yet. Like, the NFL is crying out effectively for the um, the European, what the hell was that league where Kurt Warner went? The European Development League the, that they had years ago that's completely dropped out of my brain what it was actually the, called. Uh, World league, the uh, World League, right? No, the... Damn it! What was it called? Anyway, the the, the NFL is desperate. NFL Europe. NFL Europe. Yeah. NFL Europe. I knew it was something simple. Um, the NFL is crying out for a new version of NFL Europe. Like they can that because it just costs too much money. They need it though. Like it's it served a valuable purpose in terms of development. There were a ton of NFL players came out of NFL Europe, um, and the XFL USFL merged entity can serve as that if they get into bed with the NFL properly. You have anything else to say on this? I think we've given it its due time. <laughs> no, as long as The Rock it remains heavily involved, I think we're all good. We have an open invitation to The Rock if he would like to discuss mm. the USF-XL merger. He can join yeah. the PFF NFL podcast anytime. You can't. I mean, you can't put the U.S. part first. Clearly, the X is going to be at the start. X X USFL. Yeah. No, because then it. Yeah. Then it. No, I don't know if that's going to work. Um, I'll see if I can work my rock connections as my high school baseball coach's girlfriend's niece's husband. I right. think we should be able to get in touch with the Rock to get him on this top five NFL podcast featuring an Irishman. Shouldn't be that hard. I mean, he's probably not busy. Um, it's my favorite show of the week, as always, Wednesday. There's no structure. We can ramble. We can talk to you. We can get these interactions. We can break news. And so the breaking news here today is the Browns signing Kareem Hunt. Mm. I believe it's officially official. The Browns are going to sign Kareem Hunt. Of course, the Nick Chubb injury, just horrendous the other night. We feel for Nick Chubb. 
Uh, Browns are bringing Kareem Hunt back. Jerome Ford was fantastic in relief of Nick Chubb the other night. But some insurance here for the Browns with Kareem Hunt. Does he have anything left, Sam? Yeah, that's going to be interesting. We didn't talk too much about the Nick Chubb injury uh, yesterday with Trev. We we mentioned it, but we didn't actually linger on it. So maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit now. But yeah, I mean, Kareem Hunt was an obvious solution to that, right? A player that used to be uh, a combination with Nick Chubb and then was sort of let go and, and hadn't caught on anywhere else. But in this world now of uncertainty in that Cleveland backfield, bringing back a guy that you know fairly intimately makes a lot of sense, even if he doesn't end up being the bell cow in that backfield, but simply having that contingency, I think is smart from Cleveland's point of view. And, you know, the last time we saw Kareem Hunt, he looked very good. It's a little bit confusing why he hadn't caught on somewhere already, unless the NFL has simply decided that, you know, at this point in his career, he's probably got not got anything left and hasn't really dove into that. Maybe he was asking for too much money or whatever, but I, I think it makes sense for, for both parties. Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's celebrate Nick Chubb here for a minute. The guy has been just outstanding. I love that um, our old friend Mike Renner, uh, rest in peace, tweeted out the Nick Chubb unbelievable carry from 2014. He was a true freshman. It was week one against Clemson. Clemson was awesome that year defensively. Their entire defense gets drafted, and Nick Chubb as a true freshman runs through the entire defense. He looked like, I think my early comparison was a bigger Maurice Jones-Drew, who's like a bowling ball to tackle, and probably faster too, right? Bowling ball to tackle, but also with breakaway speed. And then Chubb gets injured in college, really bad knee injury, the Schefter tweet the other day that rehashed the whole thing. Um, and, And Chubb was not the same for a couple of years. And then when he's finally healthy in the NFL, just averages five yards per carry every single year. As much as we like to downplay the effectiveness of running backs, given the rest of their circumstances, I believe there are a few when they're on the field that make a consistent impact. It is Nick Chubb, Christian McCaffrey, Derek Henry. There there are a few. Alvin Kamara, I think, when, when healthy, right? When they are out there, they are elevating the offensive line. They're not only what I think Chubb did really well, has done very well maximizing what's there with home run ability as well right sometimes you have like a david montgomery who just kind of gets what's there doesn't have breakaway ability you have a saquon barkley i don't think he maximizes what's there but he's got breakaway ability right anytime saquon's going to go 60 nick chubb can do it all right he'll get you your three four five when it's there but he'll also get you 60 if needed and that's why i think nick chubb has been so good so effective running that mostly zone scheme for the browns so yeah uh Tough loss for the Browns because not only is Nick Chubb really good, but some teams just lean on the run game more than others, and the Browns have. And they've had um, as good of a run game with Nick Chubb as as any team in the league besides the Ravens over the last few years. So tough loss, and Nick Chubb really a, a special player. Yeah, I I really feel for Nick Chubb. He's been spectacular. I think he's been the best pure ball carrier in the NFL over his NFL career, really, right up there. I think ahead of Derrick Henry, but certainly in that category. Um, And the really concerning thing for him, I think, is it's the same knee that he tore to bits in college, which I don't know if if that many people even know that that happened since he was such a, he's been such a good player in the NFL, but he had a really bad knee injury in college. It's the same knee. Um, Josina Anderson is, is reporting today that he might need multiple surgeries on that already, like before they've even gone in. That's probably not a great sign. Um, so, 
look, just hope for his sake that, I mean, he's an absolute physical freak show. You know, you've seen the videos of him like running track in high school where he's like twice the size of the people he's running against. Um, we've seen the videos of him doing those off-season workouts, you know, squatting a million pounds and all those kinds of things. He's clearly an insane physical specimen and just hope for his sake that translates to healing and he's going to come back, you know, 100%, even if it takes some time. But absolutely horrible, brutal injury. Um, and you really feel for a guy who, by all accounts, is a great person as well as a great player. Um, sucks for him. Sucks for the Browns. So Kareem Hunt getting signed here by the Browns. I believe Jerome Ford, looked, like I said, looked really good. He had... Um, what was it? More more yards after contact than actual yards because he had those those couple big runs where he's contacted at the line and turned him into big plays. Um, it was a one night deal, but Ford looked pretty good the other night. I think he'll get first crack at you know replacing Nick Chubb and then Kareem Hunt, who's who has a history of being a, a pretty shrewd receiver receiver guy that you can move around the formation. Um, we'll see if he has anything left, but assuming Hunt will be more of the uh, the backup option for Jerome Ford here going forward. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm, that'll be an interesting thing to monitor, like how much workload they give Kareem Hunt and how good he looks. Um, I forgot to, I, I have to make sure I download that GM background. So you want me to have that <laughs> pop up for the GM segment later? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, what you're trying to do? In Zoom calls, you can change your background, you know, to a virtual background. Yeah. Effectively, you can create your own green screen using Zoom. Now, people do this to put all kinds of crazy things behind them during Zoom calls. And what I thought would be good is you could do the Palazzolo consultant GM segment from your mother's basement using that virtual to. background, right? So yeah. I, I, I prepped this as a concept. I asked Tyler if he could send you the background. He did. It's all set up. Only apparently you didn't do anything. No, I'll that. be ready. I'll be ready. Okay. I'll be, but not now. I mean, we've got this background, you know? Right. I'm, I'm just saying that's my not... dad's going to come walking through yeah. here. You never know. The t Christmas tree's not up, so you don't get to see that. No. We got a lot of, uh, my sister's moving, and it's like a storage bin over here. It's a lot of stuff. But uh, I'll get the background going. I'll get the background. So you wanted to do a little uh, panic meter on the 0-2 team, Sam. We mm -hmm. want to go through the through the negatives and then maybe you know shed some light, yeah, some positivity for some of these 0-2 teams. How do you want to do this? Well, let me give you a rundown of who is currently an 0-2 team. So we've got the New England Patriots. We have the Cincinnati Bengals the Houston Texans, the Denver Broncos, the Los Angeles Chargers, uh, the Minnesota Vikings, the Chicago Bears, the Arizona Cardinals, and the Carolina Panthers. Those are your 0-2 teams in the NFL so far. All right, so let's say, let's start with, okay, teams that we feel good about given their circumstances. Well, yeah, let's start simply with can any of these teams pull themselves out of this and actually make the postseason at the end of the year? Because that's the crux conversation always with 0-2. You go 0-2, you're done. You're not coming back. So can any of these teams come back? First off, as I say every single year, the 0-2 thing is not because it's insurmountable. It's because bad teams generally start 0-2. Or more, you know, there's far more bad teams who start 0-2. Uh, the Bengals just got out of it last year, went to the AFC Championship starting 0-2. So it is possible. I think one of the first things to look at is just point differential. You know, which teams are having some tough luck early on. You can see the Chargers with a point differential of five. The Broncos have a point differential of three. Mm. First time in NFL history a team has started 0-2 with a point differential of minus three. So a two-point loss and a one-point loss, obviously, for those keeping track at home. 
So those would be the first two teams I would start with. Of course, our eternal positivity toward the Chargers, you got to keep that going, despite their defense averaging over 10 yards per attempt, or allowing over 10 yards per attempt. But it looks like the Chargers and Broncos should be able to to bounce back from it, especially the Chargers, because I think that offense is going to click even more going forward, and I don't think the defense can be that bad moving forward. They can't be as bad as they've been. Um, the Chargers are the team. The Chargers are the one zero and two team. I think might make the playoffs. Uh, they're helped by the fact that nobody in that division has scampered off into the distance. You know, Kansas City dropped the game on opening day. That's big. So they're only one game behind, um, and they have the quality, I think, to go on a run and, and overcome some of that stuff. Like the offense is the more important part of the game in today's uh, league. And the Chargers' offense looks good. Justin Herbert, the Kellen Moore connection, I think it's only going to get better as the season wears on. They're not tapping in yet to you know, what Quentin Johnston can do, however limited that may be. There's more to come from this offense, and it already looks pretty good. Um, I don't know that you're right that the defense will get better, but even if, it, even if it doesn't, I think they'll probably be okay. So the Chargers, I think, can still make the playoffs. The Broncos aren't as bad as 0-2. But I don't know that they're good enough to, you know, make the postseason, even if they pull it all together. The other one that has an outside shot is Cincinnati, because we've seen this before. But it all comes down to what Joe Burrow, how long he's going to be out, you know, how long he's going to miss games for. Like, Joe Burrow has already not looked great. He's already looked rusty. He needs to be on the field to get himself through to the other side of that and get to the elite version of Joe Burrow we know exists. But if he's going to be out a couple of weeks... And then take another couple of weeks to get the rust off. Like you're running out of games for them to win, even if they go on a run, you know, towards the end of the year, particularly in a tough division. Um, so Cincinnati has a chance, but if Burrow can't get on the field ASAP, the chance disappears. Can't remember what we were thinking last year at this time, but I do know the Bengals were 0 2 last year after losing to the Steelers. It was a quirky first game. Burrow had four interceptions. There was a missed field goal at the end. It was a weird one. And then week two, they lost to the Cowboys, where Micah Parsons just dominated. They couldn't block him, and the offensive line looked just like they did um, on the Super Bowl run when they were all injured and Burrow was getting crushed. So I don't know if we were saying, hey, they'll be fine, or if it was kind of panic time, but they did turn it around. And I've given Zach Taylor and that coaching staff a ton of credit for for bouncing back from disappointments in the past. But you're right. The X factor is Joe Burrow's calf. You know, if he's healthy, I'd say, hey, we've got enough evidence here. Two-time AFC championship participants, went to the Super Bowl two years ago. Jamar Chase isn't going to, you know, have average 30 yards per game going forward. Those guys will be fine. And we've also seen the Bengals make schematic changes in the middle of the season. You don't always see that from teams, but we've seen the Bengals adjust their run game, adjust their pass game. Right, Just two years ago, they went from a let, let's hand it off to Joe Mixon 25 times a game team to let's have Joe Burrow drop back 50 times a game. Let's hand the reins to Joe Burrow in the middle of the 2021 season, which was the right move. So those are the things that have me thinking Cincinnati can figure it out because they have a coaching staff that's willing to adjust on the fly, You know, hide some weaknesses, play to their strengths. But the calf is the entire thing. Like if Joe Burrow doesn't play on Monday Night Football against the Rams, against a real feisty Rams team with Stafford playing pretty well, it could be zero and three. And in the the and they're still going to play a first place schedule, right? You have the Bills, you have the Chiefs, you have a very difficult schedule if you're the Bengals, especially relative to the rest of the AFC North. 
So that's the other tricky part, I think, for Cincinnati this year compared to last year. The injury, the fact that they've lost two games in the division as well, that's going to be much harder to get out of now than it was maybe last year. Yeah. No. And, and, to, and to get out of it last year, Sam, remember the run yeah. the Bengals went on in the second half? Every good team in the NFL, mm -hmm. they beat on their way to the playoffs. They beat Kansas City. They, they, they had a good run on the way to the playoffs. And it, that's really tough to replicate once again. Yeah, and they went into that, you know, the the postseason with an insane run of simply consecutive wins. Like they they dropped another game to Cleveland midseason because they always lose to Cleveland apparently. Um, and, yeah. But they went on that run that really solidified things. I'm just saying it's possible. Like we know this team is capable of doing that. We saw it last year. I think they're capable of doing it again. Um, but Burrow's health is key. Like he needs to a get back healthy and b can't take too many weeks to get to being 100 percent. like even once he's healthy he can't spend three weeks being rusty and not looking like the same guy because they need those wins the other two oh and two teams we'll just let's just discuss in the afc panic meter for the new england patriots they're oh and two and the houston texans what do you make of those oh and two starts we already talked chargers broncos and bengals in the afc yeah, I mean, it depends what your definition of panic is. 0-2 for the Patriots, I think the playoffs might already be gone. Um, the division is probably already gone, certainly, because Miami looks phenomenal and there's too many other good teams there. It, panic in terms of will they be terrible? No. Like, they'll they'll bounce back and they might get somewhere towards 500 or even above it, but they've just put themselves too far behind the eight ball to be real contenders and probably even to make the playoffs given what the AFC is even though the AFC's record is bad against the NFC so far this year. So, you know, it depends on your definition of panic for the Patriots. Like, it's not crisis stations. They've been in these games. They've been close. But they've put themselves way behind where they need to be. I think the concerning thing for New England is coming into the season, they felt like they built a team that is what you're going to say, you know, going to be around 500. Maybe they're 7-10. and 10, Maybe they're 8-9. and nine. Um, And they've got some work to do to do that because they've they lost their first two games at home as well. Good teams, Eagles and Dolphins, but New England only has six home games left, starting 0-2. Right. But if they're another mediocre team, and they have a history of being a mediocre team in the post-Tom Brady era, it, it raises even more questions about Bill Belichick, the team building. Right. We thought that Bill O'Brien was going to save everything. They've, they've scored 37 points in two weeks with a better offense, with an offense that looks night and day better than last year, and they've still only scored 37 points because they're just not explosive. Mac Jones isn't effective throwing the ball down the field, and the playmakers aren't good at catching the ball down the field. It goes back to what we said a lot during the offseason. It's a, it's not fantasy football exactly in the NFL, but if you have a mid-tier quarterback, you better focus on your skill position players because they're going to elevate your quarterback, and you're not seeing that in New England right now. Houston's young, and yeah, you know, I think they'll play tough, but it's uh, it's a rebuilding year for Houston again. But I think it's okay to just say, hey, they're still in this in this rebuild here. Yeah, they're in a tough spot. Their their season is really all about it's CJ Stroud, and not even necessarily about but putting him in good positions. Like I think that's part of the problem. They they can't have what happened last week against Indianapolis happen too much in terms of getting into this kind of hole where the whole game becomes about, oh, chasing the win, like chasing multiple scores in terms of deficit. you got to at least be close enough that you can keep C.J. Stroud on a neutral game script, right? Because that helps him. Like that 
aids his development, which is the most important thing. The problem with some of these bad teams is that it's like it compounds the problem. Like if you suck, you're going to be in a big hole, and then you now need to change the way you call plays on offense, which makes life harder for the young quarterback who, you know, the whole thing just spirals. So the biggest thing for Houston is simply not being so bad that it makes things even worse and you have even bigger problems trying to uh, make CJ or help CJ try to look at his best. Somebody tweeted at us about the, the the Chargers breakdown we had the other day and they suggested that that line that I had where I said mm. this is why I hate the Chargers that we should be adding that to the intro yeah I, I think I think the context might be lost there but <laughs> just to circle back on the Chargers really quick I was saying that because they got me believe they had me believing again they got me believing I'm still believing but that's the down perfect, uh, two. that's the perfect quote to stick into the title because it doesn't matter if the context gets lost because there's only 17 Chargers fans in the world anyway so yeah they won't get offended right if now, it was the Steelers then they'd say ah we knew it PFF hates the Steelers right the fans would would cling to that now your problem might be that the Chargers social media guys are very active and you know they're they have targets on media's back like remember that's true Seth got dragged for his Justin Herbert pre-draft take so that might be your issue is that those guys will zoom in and uh, and attack you maybe Seth should drag him back he's a 500 quarterback since entering the NFL all right yeah let's go uh NFC 0 and two teams I think the Vikings are the most intriguing um I was you know I kind of <laughs> bought into my own pre-made Vikings hype yeah you did before the season um they had to play the Eagles in one of their two games mm -hmm. they also lost to the Bucks so yeah. there's a little bit of both um it also the Vikings are the the challenging part here is they're still getting good quarterback play I mean Kirk Cousins on Thursday night football last week making throw after throw under pressure and in trying to bring Minnesota back as best they could in addition to just having Justin Jefferson an emerging rookie and Jordan Addison a TJ Hawkinson it's like the the foundation of Minnesota's team building is exactly what we would do, right? Have a good, whatever you think about Cousins, he's a good enough quarterback, have some playmakers to throw to, but the defense is just in such a transition period, it's difficult to have any faith in Minnesota stopping anybody this year. Yeah, the defense isn't good. Um, it doesn't have enough talent. The offense should be pretty good. There's still a concern on the offensive line, which has never gone away, um, you know, over the last few years. So I feel... I mean, they they maybe are a slightly more extreme version of what they always are, but they'll be okay. Like, they'll be a mid-tier team, which is where the Vikings typically reside year to year. It may look slightly differently, and it may be 100% carried by the offense, um, but I feel like that's ultimately still where they're going to end up, middle of the pack somewhere. All right, the Cardinals 0-2. Yeah, as expected. They've got the uh, a tankable team, and that's what they look like at 0-2, despite Josh Dobbs playing really well for that first half and keeping a minute against the Giants. They're in a, a good spot. Do you have some Cardinals? Well, here's a question for you. Are the Cardinals executing the most picture-perfect tank job in the history of the world? Because they're doing exactly what you would do, the way to tank correctly, which is not you know, to go out there and say, hey, guys, we're going to try and lose every game. It's to just set things up institutionally so that even if you play hard, you can't win, right? Josh Dobbs is your quarterback. That's probably only going to end one way. Oh, Buda Baker's got like a slight, you know, boo-boo. 
IR for you, sir. You're not going to play for another few weeks. Like, they are setting things up so that they can play hard and coach things well and, you know, let's go, guys, we can get this one, and then ultimately fall short because you're the Cardinals and you don't have any talent left. Like, are they actually doing this perfectly? It's well done. So Miami in 2019 when they were accused and, um, you know, whatever, they started (laughs) – their point differential after the first two weeks was like – 86 to 10 or something right they lost a uh, baltimore by a million and i think they lost to new england by a million and so the 2019 dolphins looked bad on paper and played bad on the field the the cardinals are playing hard man they're playing hard in the first half and keeping it close with the commanders keeping it close with the giants and those old school nfc east battles so yeah minus seven point differential for the zero and two cardinals i think mm-hmm. that's perfect right get your Stack up your losses, but uh, play hard to keep it close. Did you see Ben Baldwin tweeted that there is a non-zero chance that the upcoming draft features Arizona having the number one and number two pick and then Chicago having the number three and number four pick? I would love it. That would be unbelievable. Well, imagine the Bears sitting there saying, like, man, we just want... So the Cardinals would say, hey, Caleb Williams and Marvin Harrison package is very attractive. Yes. But then the Bears might want Marvin Harrison so bad they might give up both of their picks to move up. Like the, you know, they might say, "We'll give you three and four for two. Oh, we also, want Marvin Harrison Jr. for our next quarter." Or they might need the next quarterback. Who knows? Right. Um, if you're the Bears, that's the thing. Also, Arizona might decide actually, Kyler Murray is still going to be the guy. Or even if they pick Caleb Williams at number one, Chicago is sitting there at three, probably a, dumping. They want Drake May right. or the next quarterback, probably yeah, the next dumping, UNC quarterback. Yeah, probably dumping Justin Fields at that point desperate for the other quarterback or the one remaining elite guy and willing to trade like anything in the world to jump one spot to get that guy and essentially repeating the Mitchell Trubisky saga over again. Oh my gosh, I'm already ready. I'm ready for draft season already. Um, Who else have we got so to own to? The oh, yeah. Bears and Panthers are the other two right. NFC teams to discuss. Let's we, start with the Bears since we were just discussing them. Yeah, we essentially already almost covered that in the these two teams are potentially on schedule for like the next two spots in the draft. Uh, yeah, Chicago, I I think they're very close to. I mean, they are. This is full panic with Justin Fields at this point. Um, Fields isn't being tapped into as a runner. It's like they forgot everything they learned last season. Remember, it took them like half the year to be like, hey, why don't we call some design runs for this guy? It turns out he's like the second coming of Michael Vick. We should probably use that some more. And as soon as they did, everything got better. The offense was better. Justin Fields got more comfortable. It, it bought him so much more wiggle room in the pass game. And then it's like they hit the offseason. They're like, yeah, he's probably all right now. We don't need to do that anymore. Like, if, if that's – I don't know why. I don't get it. I don't understand why you would not call more design runs for Justin Fields. But they're not. I don't know. What are they doing? What's going on? I, I honestly, if I was a ge- if I was guessing, I think that their logic runs kind of along the lines of the case you tried to make at the start of last year, which is let's force him into obvious passing situations because that's what needs to get better. I just think that's an ass backwards way of doing it. Like help him help him succeed and then work on the basis that that success will allow him to get better at the things he's not good at because. Now everything is a catastrophe. He's either not reading defenses correctly at the moment or potentially even worse, he's reading them correctly and doesn't trust himself enough to pull the trigger. Either way, it's a, it's a disaster for the passing game. And while you're doing that, you've taken away half the running game because you're not calling those design runs anymore. So my, my 
in a nutshell, analysis of Chicago is they're boned and Justin Fields might stink. That's awful after two games. I'll have a response in a minute. But first, we're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups to walk away an instant winner. And DraftKings isn't stopping there. It's all customers who can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Football's more fun when you're in on the action, so download the app now and sign up with code PFF. New customers can bet just $5 to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, using code PFF. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility, for eligibility terms. And responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Nailed Look at it. that. You're uh, you're on location, but you're still right in the zone. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Trying to figure out which things to read, and <laughs> it's all good. How, um, I'm curious, as a as a person that occasionally moonlights redoing the ad reads and the terms and conditions, um, how close are you on every occasion to reading out? the call to action or whatever like the thing the label for the bits you're supposed to read no i'm beyond that i'm beyond reading call to action yeah because i still especially like when you've when you've done a few after a while uh, you get used to when you're just when it's fresh copy Mm. though sometimes you can well you're in you're in reading mode right and yeah those are words i did it once right did i do that one time i said yeah i think so i think we've both done it at least once i said call to action oh shoot (laughs) delete that We have great we have great producers who edit out all of my mistakes. Yeah, I don't so, think they do that. Um, just to finish the Justin Fields discussion, mm. I, if if I'm guilty of one thing, Sam, it is uh, it is thinking about the best in people and their decision making and thinking uh, trying to trying to think that they're playing chess when it looks like checkers. And so I try to give the bear I tried to give the Bears credit a couple years ago. I tried to give the Eagles credit when they had. Justin Fields and Jalen Hurts, respectively. And I said, hey, they're not using them in the run game because they've got the bigger picture in mind. They've got the bigger picture. They're going to they're gonna turn these guys into passers first, and then they'll unleash the run game when it's time. And it kind of looked like that on paper for the Eagles, and I tried to give the same credit to the Bears. But to me, that made sense when a QB's in year one or two. Right? Like in year one or two, that makes sense. But we're in year three of Justin Fields. So it's and it's week one in the NFC North where nobody's really afraid. You have Aaron Rodgers is gone. The Lions are the favorite in the NFC North. The Vikings have, you know, destroyed their entire defense. Everybody's gone. Like the Bears came into the season thinking we can make some noise. Ryan Poles has, you know, 90% of the roster are his guys. We can make some noise. So there's no way the Bears came into the season being like, oh, let's just develop Justin Fields as a passer. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they're not running him. There's no ulterior motive here i don't think there's no bigger picture goal for the bears other than what they forgot to call running plays for justin fields they forgot that he can average 100 yards per game if they choose and that'll help him not have to read it out play after play after play and take six sacks and throw the ball to the defense and fumble the ball the way he has been did they just forget i think they just forgot they forgot it's it's the fact that they learned the lesson last year. Like this is not the first time they're making this mistake. They made it to start last year and then figured it out halfway through the year. And it's like all of that information just fell out of their brains in the off season 
and they, they're going to have to spend six weeks coming to the same conclusion that they already came to. It's like, what the hell are we doing here? We've already done this. We've been on this merry-go-round already. Stop doing it. <sighs> so the panic part of the Bears is you're just – look, it's still early. They were – they were two and one last year, so it's not like it doesn't look like last year. But they haven't won a game since what week three Hat tip of to last Greg season. Gabe. What? Hat tip to Greg Gabe. Greg Gabe. They haven't won a game since Greg Gabriel <laughs> said the Bears are way better than you experts. Did you see the uh, the meme that's out there? That's like, uh, have yes. you won a game since since Elon Musk bought Twitter? And it's like a giant circle around 31 teams. Like, of course we have. They, it happened on October 22nd or whatever. And then there's the Bears. Just no. That's so tough. the panic part of that is in the middle of a rebuild where I'm not like, I don't expect the, I wasn't expecting the Bears to make the playoffs or anything, but you just, you know, signs of life. The new players are playing well. The new regime, it's just not there yet. A little panicky, I think, for the Bears. On the other end, you know, if they have the second or third pick in the draft and they just grab the next quarterback, it's going to be funny if they have a shot at Drake May and how much we hate same school scouting. And But <laughs> Bears fans are absolutely going to say, please, not the UNC quarterback. I don't care who he is. Mm. I don't care if he's Drew Brees. I'm not taking the UNC quarterback because I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. Also, so, I mean, you know, that's going to happen. We may be in a world now where, you know, Caleb Williams may emerge as the clear number one guy. And, you know, Drake Mays had a rough had a rough game last week, right? He's had some issues. It started off maybe being 1-1A, maybe it ends up being clear one and then a gap. And if that happens, if you're sitting there with 3 and 4, how tempted are you going to be to trade everything to go get number one? Like to go get Caleb We're Williams. We're also going to have the same debate we had last year. You know, should the Bears draft Bryce Young and let him compete right. with Justin Fields, or should the Bears draft Drake May and JJ McCarthy or Michael Penix or Quinn Ewers or whoever else? There might be five first-round quarterbacks next year. By the way, Sam, I mean it's going to be crazy as far as the depth of this draft. I know you're, you know, all in on the draft with Trevor let's on Tuesdays, spend, but let's spend number three and number four on quarterbacks and keep Justin Fields and have a yes. three-way quarterback battle in camp. Go get him. That's what I would do. Yeah, what else would you do? Really what is. else would you do? All right, Panthers 0-2. Yeah. And so they're they're in a rebuild, right? right? They they sacrificed. Not only did they sacrifice multiple picks to go up in the draft to get Bryce Young, but they're coming off the back of a few years where they didn't have draft picks or a ton of draft capital to invest in their roster. Remember in 2021, they had a they sixth overall pick and they didn't pick again until the fourth round. And then they traded up in the third. But they needed a quarterback in 2021. And we said, hey, they don't really have a ton of draft capital. And you know, there was debate about Kenny Pickett at six. They end up taking Matt Corral in the third. This year, the Panthers trade up to number one. So they're giving up some depth to go get Bryce Young. I think we knew it might be a bit of a struggle. I don't love what I'm seeing from the struggle because what we had guessed was the receiving core is not going to be great for Carolina. The offensive line's not going to be great. So is this going to end up be becoming essentially a lost year of evaluation for Bryce Young? Yeah, I mean, they're in danger of the situation around him being so bad that they don't get a clean evaluation on him. Now, to be honest, I don't know that it matters because they're not giving up on the number one overall pick after a year, no matter how bad he looks. So they can afford to just stink this year and get the, the evaluation on Bryce Young next year. The big thing is, 
not damaging him, right? And I don't mean just physically, though that's potentially a concern as well. I mean, just this year cannot be detrimental to Bryce Young's progression or development or potential in the NFL, and that's the risk. I mean, remember when DeAndre Hopkins was on the market and I said that Carolina should go after DeAndre Hopkins. And people said it was ridiculous because you got this young team, like he's going to be done by the time they're good and blah, blah, yeah. But the point is saving him from what's currently happening, which is having nowhere to go with the ball and an offensive line that isn't good enough to hold up forever while he figures out where he wants to go with the ball, right? DeAndre Hopkins would have filled that void perfectly and given him somewhere reliable to go with the football and made Adam Thielen look a little bit better because he's dealing with worse coverage and made Jonathan Mingo like a, you know, an afterthought who could potentially make some plays. Those guys are like what he has now. DeAndre Hopkins would have been perfect. They didn't do it. And now you're sort of living with he doesn't have anywhere to throw. And that's problematic because it's already hard enough to make the transition to the NFL without trying to rewire your brain to like none of these guys are open. Like where the hell am I supposed to go with the ball? Yeah, it, the offense looks rough right now, Sam. I mean, Adam Thielen essentially being the go-to guy, he's certainly lost a step, lost a little bit of twitch. I think you see maybe like on the two-point conversion that they had and a few other plays, Thielen's a good, hey, find a soft spot in the zone type yeah. of player. But when he's your go-to guy on third down, hey, go win this one-on-one, I'm kind of with you, man. DeAndre Hopkins, I always reference the, uh, the Reggie Wayne year for Andrew Luck in 2012. Wayne stayed one more season was still a very good possession receiver just to transition to Andrew Luck, right? You don't have to put your entire team into rebuild mode. Now, I think the Panthers kind of wanted Adam Thielen to be that guy, yeah. right? To say, hey, you're going to be this late in your career, help out our young quarterback guy. But yeah, Thielen's just uh, not looking great when he's got to you know win one-on-one. So it's a below-average receiving core. It's a below-average offensive line. And I don't know how much of Bryce Young not throwing the ball down the field is opportunity or if it's really they are kid-gloving it and just saying, make some reads, take the safe stuff, don't get killed. Uh, but, you know, we're not seeing any of that natural playmaking that Bryce Young you know, showed at Alabama. Yeah, um, it is a worry. Like I, The funny thing is, for in two weeks, I've come away with kind of the same feel about Bryce Young and the uh, the late Neil Hornsby. I almost said an identical version of this to me yesterday on the phone. The, the, he's still alive. But he's again. he's late of PF. This is our shtick. You know that. The late Michael Renner, the late Austin Gale, the late Eric Eager, the late uh, Neil Hornsby. They're all... Sorry, I screwed... Hold on. All, sorry, I'm trying to get my background. I screwed up the video. I apologize to the producers. Yeah, go ahead. What, did, what saying, else did, what did Neil say? They're all dead to us, you know? In, in, yeah. if Even if not actually dead. He said the same thing that like Outside of the terrible mistakes by Bryce Young, he looked good, you know? Outside of the Christian Ponder play where he just, like, runs into the flat and gets tackled by Carl Grandison for a fumble, he looked good. And outside of that throw where he left it, you know, inside and it was pick up, pick interceptable, he looked good. Like my week one analysis of, like, outside of the two ridiculous throws where he just heaved it to Jesse Bates, he looked pretty good. He just doesn't have any help. So, you know, I think the Panthers are not in a good spot right now. Um but it's really about whether Bryce Young can just keep his head above water this season because next year is what's going to be, you know, what it's going to be. All right, let me see if I can find this background here. Yeah, you're going to give that a shot. This is a really high level yeah. uh, 
production meeting that we're having live on the air. Well, I didn't. Yeah, there we go. How's that? Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. Now, one might argue that a true professional would have done that whilst the transition was playing, but uh, I had to test it out. I can out. go now. Okay, we're close enough. So this is the uh, the GM segment. Now you can roll the transition that we don't need to cover Steve's thing. There we go. That's me getting into place here. It is. All right, you ready? My pen. Yeah, I'm at the podium. Okay, so this question came in from the Discord. I'm going to modify it a little bit and change exactly what... So I'll read you out what he said, and then I'll give you my modified version. Um, This came in from Jordan Smith. Is there anything that an NFL coach can do to prove it's the quarterback's fault and not his own? Whenever an offense underperforms to expectations, it seems that the coach is always the first to take the blame. For example, when things go south in Cleveland, Stefanski will be fired before Deshaun Watson leaves. Is there anything that Stefanski can do in the meantime to show that Deshaun Watson just isn't good anymore and that he deserves a second chance in the NFL? So that was the question. As consultant GM, I'm going to give you a modified version of it. Um... Let's say I am either my billionaire owner uh, or the current actual GM. Um, how do I differentiate who is to blame, whether it's the coach or the GM or the or the head, the coach or the quarterback? How do I figure out where to apportion the blame? Things are going south. It's going bad. I'm the guy with the responsibility of fixing it. How do I figure out whether my coach sucks or my quarterback has simply let him down and the personnel move was a mistake? Man, that's a that's a that's a great question. So we're we're getting into a little human nature and psychology here. So let me start by this. If I'm the GM, I'm going to start by siding with the guy that I hired. So for instance, if I did not hire Kevin Stefanski yet I was the one who traded for Deshaun Watson, I will not try to prove that it's Deshaun Watson's fault. I'll try to prove that it's the coach's fault, right? Because I want to have my moves look good. I want to shine to uh, billionaire owner Sam over here. So that's the first thing is I might deceive the owner with um with uh, some misinformation to make sure that I look good as a starting point. Now, had I hired both, then this is tricky, right? You got to do a little uh, wit and without analysis <laughs> as they say in Philly when it comes to the cheese steaks, right? We got Deshaun Watson with, Deshaun Watson without, we have Kevin Stefanski with and Kevin Stefanski without. So you got to try to prove that Kevin Stefanski and your record before Deshaun Watson got there. Hey, I had Baker Mayfield. I had Jacoby Brissett, and we were winning games. I'm winning games with those guys as quarterbacks. You saddled me with Deshaun Watson as soon as I threw him in the lineup. What if they won three games? What are they, three and seven? I don't even, I haven't even checked their record recently. All I know is Deshaun Watson's ranked as the 39th PFF quarterback since he's come in, 39th passing grade, third highest sack rate, some bad stuff. That's another thing that you could potentially look at is like sack rate, right? Here's this one specific stat that is QB driven. Take the QB driven stuff and blame the quarterback. Throw all the blame on Deshaun Watson. We have a good offensive line. I've had better sack rates with Baker Mayfield, with Jacoby Brissett, guys who are not good when it comes to sack rate. And this guy over here, Watson's even worse. So if you really are trying to paint your quarterback in a bad light, you focus on the stats that the quarterback controls the most and just throw the blame all at him. And you say, hey, this is what I was doing before this guy got here. It was way better. We were winning more games. We were more effective on offense. This dude's dragging me down. He's not the same guy that he was in Houston. All right. I think that's fair. But that'd be mean to just uh, you know throw people under the bus so that you look good. So I wouldn't do that. I mean, look, it's self-preservation. It's every man for himself in this game. You got to do what you got to do, you know? Whatever makes you I like look that. Good. We got any follow-ups from the chat? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't checking for a live reaction to the. Would 
would GM Steve take TJ Watt or Miles Garrett (sighs) on the football team? I actually don't know. I don't know where I would go with that. I think you can you could certainly make a case for both. TJ Watt plays a slightly different role. He'll drop into coverage. Do you have a take on that? Miles Garrett will will grade slightly higher yeah. for us on a year by year basis. I'll also let me just throw this little wrinkle into the mix that I've said one thing I've said for years. If you are a pass rusher going up against right tackles every single week, you have an easier job. Miles Garrett is generally going up against left tackles in the NFL generally does put their best pass protector at left tackle. It's a little bit more even than it was years ago, but if you're going up against the right tackle every every week like TJ Watt, you do have an easier job than the right end going up against left tackles. It is also, it's also interesting because Pittsburgh specifically is like a custom-made offense for Miles Garrett to look bad. Like, every oh, yeah. time he plays Pittsburgh, he annihilates Dan Moore Jr., but the ball is always out quickly, so it never shows up in the stat sheet. So we have this, like, run of years of play of Miles Garrett putting, like, some of the best individual performances like, in the season against Pittsburgh every year, and it's showing up as, like, one tackle on the stat sheet or whatever. Meanwhile, T.J. Watt is over there doing what T.J. Watt does and making some big, you know, game-changing plays and stuff because he's an elite player as well. So you just have this, like... It's almost like it's somebody's designing this. Like the script, the script is out here, like specifically arranging the Steelers game so that Miles Garrett looks bad by comparison to TJ Watt. Like that's part of the script for the NFL every year. It's actually bizarre that it's it's manifested in that way. So I proposed a question to myself, and I don't really want to answer it. Um, I think it depends on the scheme. Certain schemes, I would take TJ Watt over Miles Garrett. I, I think all these debates are. So close, though. The difference between T.J. Watt, Miles Garrett, Micah Parsons might be just a touch above those guys this season. But he's got a lot of help in Dallas. He has a ton of help to help, you know, to make him look good, too. They're all awesome. They're all outstanding players. I mean, that's honestly my takeaway is like in any given week, there are six defenders who could look like that. Right. Micah Parsons, Miles Garrett, T.J. Watt, uh, Chris Jones, Aaron Donald, and who am I missing? Uh, Nick Bosa. So I think six defenders that in any given week can take over a game, can absolutely dominate, can have a a truly game-wrecking performance and lay waste to everything in front of them. And during the course of the game, you're like, dude, this guy's defensive player of the year. Anybody even pitching for anybody else is a moron, right? And if somebody kept track of this, you would find the same guy saying, making that case for like four different people in primetime games this season. Like that's what's going to happen. But it – Actually deciding which one of those guys is defensive player of the year, assuming nobody else emerges as a candidate, it's going to be like over 17 games. What did it look like, right? Because all of them are capable of doing that in one game. It's going to be which one did it the most for 17 games. All I ask, you could compare sack totals. That's fine. It's not the best way to do it, but go for it. All I ask is that when you make the stack comparisons, do not include fumbles recovered. Do not do fumble recoveries. It's... No, it's not part of the equation. Do the other stuff. Just take fumble recoveries out of it. I mean, you know, I feel like there's a world where you get credit for them, just not that much. Like, you know, 
No, but it very... plays with your brain because those are the only things you track, right? Most people put tackles, sacks, interceptions, forced fumbles, fumble recovery, and your brain tracks. It's like, oh, yeah, two fumble recoveries. Miles Garrett had zero. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Okay. Anything else to discuss here? There's a lot happening around the NFL. Any other uh, hot topics? No, I think we're out. We're getting, we got our uh, re- preview show tomorrow, uh, and that's it. The preview show is tomorrow. One more day down here in the basement. Maybe I'll use the background the entire time here. But um, we'll go game by game, as we always do. Once again, we appreciate everybody that has been with us for years. And we appreciate everybody that's new, that's joining us for the 2023 NFL season. It's what we do, our midweek show. It's all about you, Discord, questions, email questions, all that fun stuff comes through on Wednesday. And Monday, we're reviewing. And Thursday, we're previewing every single game. Sound good? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks to everybody for for tuning in. We'll see you again tomorrow with more PFF NFL Podcasts.